todo el mundo. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the film The Ventures Stars on Guitars. You are listening to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast for people who love music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And now, on to the show. Today I have a co-host, Joel David Amos, author of the short story, Sharing the Fright Together, which appears in volume two of the book series, Do You Fear Like We Do, the 70s edition of Rock and Roll Nightmares. Hi, Joel. Hello, Stacy. Thank you so much for including me. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here. Um, the song title that I assigned to you is a play on words from Sharing the Night Together by a band called Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show from the 70s. Um, but the band you created for your short story is pretty different from that band. Can you tell us mm -hmm. how you came up with the name and their story? Um, when I was in high school, um, me and some friends flirted with playing in a band. We never really did much with it. I was in another band later, but um, I came up with the name Fragile Glass, and I just thought that sounded great. And then being a dreaming 13, 14 year old kid, I mean, I was drawing on my uh, uh, paper bag covered school books, mm -hmm. uh, album covers like uh, Fragile Glass, This Side Up, uh, a live album called Live Glass. And to me, they were just, it was a real band. And I've been waiting, you know, decades to like do something with this name and I flirted with the idea of a full-length movie about a singer who, who dies on stage at the end um and I thought about naming that Fragile Glass but I came up with a different name for that band and then I was this project came along and I was just like, like let's give birth to Fragile Glass and the idea that the idea of their story was kind of kind of influenced by uh, Almost Famous uh, a little bit, um, at, at least the airplane part. And um, I kind of thought, you know, what, what would happen if, you know, that scene in the airplane didn't go as well as it did. Um, so I kind of started from there. We have a few different plots interwoven together, but one was, you know, the lead singer sells his soul for fame and fortune. Um, 
but it's there's a twist. Um, but why do you think that particular scenario is such a popular one in music lore? Um, I've been thinking about that a lot, and I think that 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 everybody that goes into music in a band, I mean, I mean the, the ultimate goal is success. And you know, they always joke about you got to sell your soul to work at this club, or you got to sell your soul. Well, like there's also the idea that you know you sell your soul to the devil and then you become famous without thinking later and I, and i and i being very you know cerebral kind of open it up further that that as a culture i mean we like uh quick rewards you know we, we work hard but at the same time you know we we have uh, this sense that we would like instant success you know the, the microwave dinner the, the fast food i mean everything is is just right away and what better way to find success right away than to make a deal with the devil? And I just think that there's always been that fascination in, in, in American and maybe world culture with the, the overnight success. And we all would love to have overnight success. Not that we don't want to do the work, but if we don't have to do the work, I mean, that's kind of nice too. So I, I kind of always thought that the, this idea of selling your soul to the devil kind of landed in that ballpark. Now, in addition to writing fiction, though, um, you also write screenplays, and but you mostly do entertainment reporting and movie reviews. So how did you get into that? And tell us a little bit about your website and where people can read your stuff. Um, it's, it's actually a fascinating story. Um, I was writing in marketing for Blue Cross of California in 1995, and I really did not like the work at all. And then I was near the adjusters section and I overheard a conversation where the adjuster said, well, we're going to deny his coverage for mental health anymore because if he hasn't killed himself in five years, he's not going to. And I just thought to myself, well, maybe he didn't kill himself because he is in therapy. Um, and I just wanted to get out of there. And it was almost like the universe heard me because I got the worst case of carpal tunnel. And back then it was really kind of new. So they didn't know what to do with it. And I was off of work for like two years. It got so bad at one point that I couldn't even tie my shoes. Um, and my wife knew that I liked to write. So she bought me voice activated software so I could talk and it would write for me. And then that night uh, we walked out of a movie again. And I, this movie is a big part of my life, Almost Famous. And my wife said, that kid in that movie reminded me of you. And I said, oh boy, do I have a picture for you? So we got home and I dug out this picture and it's me at 13 holding a copy of Rolling Stone with a hat on that says reporter and I have a pen in my mouth. Huh. And she said, well, you should write a review. So I wrote a review and there were these little throwaway newspapers that came once a week that people throw away that's on their driveway that's filled with ads, but they also have a lot of content. And one was down at the end of the street. And I just took this review because the movie took place in San Diego and I lived in San Diego. So I went down the street, I gave them this review. And I was like, if you want to use it because Almost Famous takes place in San Diego, I think this might fit. So they're all right, we'll check it out. Well, not only did they check it out, but they ran it and hired me. And so kind of the rest is history. I mean, I just worked and worked and worked and uh, ended up you know, traveling the world, covering movies and music and all that stuff. And uh, right now I have my own site. It's called themoviemensch.com. And uh, everything I do is on those hallowed pages. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we're both big fans of 
of classic rock music and we have a terrific guest today so let's get her on the line uh hello everyone our guest today is the lead vocalist of several cool hard rock and metal bands Susie rose major her group and that is her in all her glory her group face down was featured in the cult classic horror film rocktober blood which came out in 1984 and is the topic of another rock and roll nightmares podcast episode stacy and i both watched it and were super impressed with Susie's vocals which were dubbed in for the actress donna scoggins Susie is currently in an Aerosmith tribute band that may have the best moniker ever for an Aerosmith cover band, and that is Ragdolls. Hello, mm -hmm. Susie, and welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Hello, Joel. Hello, Stacy. So happy to be here. Hey there. I'm really happy to have you on. Um, I appreciate you guys very yeah, much. Well, I mean, you're definitely living the rock and roll dream and sometimes a nightmare in those movies. But um, <laughs> yeah. so we have a lot of questions for you. Sure. Um, our first question, uh, I, I would love it if you could to take us back to the first time you saw Rocktober Blood, that very first time, and you heard your voice up on screen coming out of Donna's character. What did that feel like? And do you call your, your emotions that first time? Was it kind of surreal? Wow, okay. So I'm in my 50s now. Um, so we're talking, how old was I? 18, I think. So you're, you're asking a lot. <laughs> to I hear you. Feel it. But I mean, I, I don't remember the exact feeling, but I can picture myself sitting there with Ben Sebastian, who was the son of Beverly and Ferd, um, who that was my connection to the film. And I went with him in his really cool, I think it was a 76 Corvette, which I got to drive home, yay! Um, or back to his place, because I was visiting from Vegas. And I guess it was kind of surreal. Um, I, I put a lot of heart and sweat and blood into, um singing rainbow eyes and at that point that was the only um song that i was aware that was in that film uh so i heard that and it was that that's really cool really cool um and then i heard some other songs in there like they're in the recording studio and wait a minute that's that's my band face down. What the heck is that doing on there? No one said anything to me. Well, hey, it's a B movie, so they don't have to tell you stuff. <laughs> but it 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 was awesome. It really was awesome. I mean, first time and I'm I'm, you know, 18 and I thought right. this is it. Oh, I'm just yeah, it's the beginning of who knows. Right. Right. We'll let it go there. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, you mentioned the song Rainbow Eyes, which is of course the most memorable song from Rocktober Blood. Um, <clears throat> did you record that with the band Sorcerer? Um, can you tell us how that came about? Sorcery. Yeah. Sorcery. Um, no, they, uh, you know, I'm not sure if they did the recording. I can, what happened was I had done a, a four song EP um, with Ben Sebastian. He discovered my band uh, through our guitar players brother who had worked at a rock radio station in Vegas at the time and 
they they came out to see us. They rec- they flew us out here. We recorded the four song EP with hopes of shopping it and maybe getting a deal. And um, Ben had later mentioned that they were doing this rock and roll horror movie. And I thought, oh, that's cool. What can can I do anything? Can I do anything? Is yeah. Why don't you try and write some songs and see if maybe we can use them in the movie. And also there's a lead singer in it. Maybe you can, you know, audition or maybe we can get you to play the lead. Well, I'm five, three and a half. So I just don't have that Donna Scoggins statuesque model look for what they were looking for. And I spent a few months writing. Um, Unfortunately, nothing was picked, but then they came to me and said well donna can't sing but we want to use your voice covering this one song uh, rainbow eyes so it had already been recorded um they i was still in vegas at the time they flew me out and i stayed at the sebastians i went to i believe baby o recording studios i don't think they exist anymore but it was pretty cool back then and i just came in by myself and i think i got it on the second take I mean, which really was rare, I guess, but I didn't know because I was young and I just wanted to please and make everyone happy. And, you know, that old time is money, money is time. I didn't want to waste anybody's time or money. So I did my best and it was the second take. Wow. So that was that. Impressive. Um, one thing that's uh, really striking about this film, watching it the, uh, the other night, is it, I mean, it took me back. Those were my jams, man, big time. It, it would have been easy to just have some songs thrown in there that simply move the needle of the story. But these tracks are polished. They're catchy. They fit the narrative of the story. Uh, were you impressed and moved maybe even by how the Sebastians, the filmmakers, treated the music aspect so seriously? I, like I said, I was kind of shocked when um, I learned that they were, they used the four song EP that had nothing to do with the movie on side two of the soundtrack. So that was a little shocking. Um, And don't get me wrong, I appreciate the Sebastians and I think they're, they were great people and very warm and caring. Um, But on the music side, yeah, I, I became friends with actually Nigel Benjamin. Um, so he did all the male lead vocals and also he acted a little bit in it. Uh, I think there was a lot of drama going on back then from what I learned later on that I was completely oblivious to. I was a young kid, just happy to be a part of something different that you know had nothing to do with anything else I was doing. So I, I really can't say on the Sebastian's end where they got anything. And I had never heard of sorcery before that. They weren't on the radio. They weren't, you know, there were no videos. I mean, no one had heard of sorcery actually before then, except for what they were saying later on. But, you know, the whole Dick Clark thing. So I, I didn't know who they were. Well, they had a great ear for talent, for sure. I, I really like all the voices and the music in the film. It does capture kind of in a time capsule. The, yeah, the great. yeah. Um, well, you've done a lot of songs for movies since then. Um, <clears throat> one of my favorites is um, actually you worked with a friend of mine, Anthony Ferranti on Sharknado 2. <laughs> no, I worked on Sharknado 1, 2, oh, Sharknado. 3, um, 4. I think they went with 
uh, Robbie Rist's version, but I still sang on the song, and five. So I have a song on almost every Sharknado. Wow. So what I was <laughs> talking about is um, Great White Skies. Was that in part two? Yeah, that one was part two. Yeah, that's such a great title for, for that Isn't movie. Isn't it? Yeah. How did that come about? Um, well, yeah. Robbie Rist, who cousin Oliver from the Brady Bunch, if you're familiar with who isn't familiar with the Brady Bunch, um, he and I are very old friends and I'm kind of his go to singer whenever he, I don't know, needs a rock singer. And I, I would do anything for the guy. I love him dearly. And he and Anthony are friends. So Robbie wrote all the original music for all the Sharknados, not the soundtrack filler music, but the original songs. And he called me up one, I guess it was spring. I can't remember what year that was for the first one and said, I have a song. Will you sing on this? It'd be perfect for your voice. And I just went over to his house, which was also a recording studio, and we laid it down. And then every Sharknado, it's like, oh, I have another one. Oh, I have another one. So I kept doing them as a favor for free. Wow. Because I love rock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sometimes you just, I don't know. Sometimes it's not about the money. It's just, I, I love Robbie and I do anything for him. Well, since we're on the subject, Here's Hell on Wheels from Sharknado 1.
and something tells me they're not done uh, sharknadoing. <laughs> if that I just is, saw, if, if, they're a, if that's a word, right? I just saw it yesterday on TV. It popped. It just pops up. I don't know if it's Shark Week again or yet. You know, every year they come back. So, what a crazy phenomenon, though. I mean, Anthony, how he pulled that together with like a nothing budget at first. You know, the first it was crazy, but he did it. And they're so cheesy and fun. That was a, that was fun hearing me on the screen. I have a, a question, actually. Um, yes, sir. Uh, taking back to the '80s again, you know, what were some of your favorite bands and songs of that era that that still get your blood pumping to this day? Oh man. Um, okay, I was the rebellious kid. That if it was too overplayed on the radio, I would hate it after a while. But it's like if I discovered it, like I was all into, uh, I was all into Def Leppard, like high and dry though. Yes. Let's start there and not and on through, you know, on through the night. And you know, I picked up on Pyromania before the radio attacked it. And then once the radio overplayed, you're just it's enough. I love it and I still love it. And I love, I mean, I love it more now because you don't hear it as often, if at all. But so I loved them, Def Leppard. I stuck with things like, you know, Old Rush, um, the hair stuff, anything too pop, I kind of strayed away from. But I mean, it was such a great time. Like Foreigner had great albums then. Um, Billy Squire had great oh. albums then. Yeah. And I ended up working um, in artist management out here for like 20 years. And I did that because, I mean, I started as a receptionist and worked my way up to day-to-day -day artist manager, even though it was in smooth jazz, but the, um, you can't pick and choose. However, these instrumentalists were artists that played in, you know, huge superstar bands like Rod Stewart, Billy Squire. Billy Squire's, uh, one of his guitarists was Jeff Golub. Jeff Golub turned into a smooth jazz, uh, he's no, no longer with us, but a smooth jazz guitarist, but he was shredding before he was doing the instrumental stuff. So mm. these guys were amazing, but I got into management because, all right, the, uh, Original music careers kind of, eh, you know, I'm not touring or anything. I'm not at that point, but I have a, I still have a connection to working in music and going behind the scenes and putting shows together, which I love to do. And uh, I just stuck it out that way while still trying to pursue my own career. Well, uh, Joel mentioned Ragdolls, which is your current band, um, which is an Aerosmith tribute band. And I love tribute bands. I mean, I go see a lot of them and I'm always really impressed by the dedication that it takes to really pull off everything from the look to the music. Um, so I imagine there are a lot of bands that would be fun to play, but um, why did you choose Aerosmith in particular? Aerosmith I've loved in a devoted hardcore manner since since the 70s late 70s and i mean steven tyler really influenced my vocals um from that screeching blood-curdling hardcore but yet bluesy style he has to joe perry's just 
coolness. Um, I wanted to be a mixture of them both, actually. And um, tribute wise, actually, Robbie Riss talked me into doing a tribute. Um, yeah, my original music was kind of at a standstill and, and in LA, especially where you have to sell your own tickets, or as they say, pay to play. I don't like guilting my friends to go see me. I don't want my friends to see me. I want strangers to want to come see my music. So um, I was at a point where it's either find a niche for myself or stop. And I can't stop because mentally I'll go insane. It's like not doing your passion. Right. So I didn't want as a female vocalist to sound like another female if I was going to cover songs. So it would have to be if I did a tribute, the logical choice to me was Aerosmith. Actually, I, st- I put an ad out for a Kansas tribute because I could nail those songs, but there isn't the audience for Kansas. Yeah, I can as... name a few songs from Kansas. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And you know, I, again, I didn't want to do a heart tribute because that's stealing my identity. So I thought, how do I keep myself but do something tribute-wise that isn't... I, mean, I have a thing with tributes. Um, I mean, they better... I don't go and see them, not to say they're, <laughs> I'm just not a tribute person. If I want to see such and such band, I want to see them or I'll go see a video. But, you know, these artists have put their life into creating that persona and those songs and that show. So for Ragdolls, I wanted to bring the essence of the band, play note for note renditions Obviously, I, I'm not trying to be Steven Tyler, um, the hair, <laughs> I got that, but, you know, I can't, I'm a woman, so, but can I get that energy without it being, you know, for lack of a better word, cheesy, trying to, you know, I'm going to try and look like him, I'll even get plastic surgery, and you know, whatever guys do, I don't know. Let's just say, in a nutshell, I'm so proud of what my band has created with ragdolls um i don't think there's another aerosmith tribute and there aren't very many out there there aren't any female ones but compare us to the guys i think we kick their ass and i'll go on record saying that so if any of you guys want to want to challenge ragdolls bring it because <laughs> i haven't heard any of them go note for note um ali handles my lead guitarist she plays Joe Perry note for note. The solos note for note, even the solos that aren't Joe Perry's because, <laughs> you know, he didn't play all his own solos in the studio. She's phenomenal. Um, I couldn't ask for a better band. And people are asking for recordings. And then they're also asking for, like, what do you guys do? Do you have your own music? Do you have any originals? So that's really a great thing. You know, people yeah. are, are relating to the band as a band. So I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of what I have. I hope uh-huh. you guys can come see it. I hope so too. Yeah, it sounds amazing. It's not an easy task by any means at all. No. Um, now, my, my first question took you back to the beginning in terms of October Blood, but I'd like to go back even further. What was your first memory of singing and what was it about that art that you could not let go of? I got my first toy piano in preschool and believe it or not 
I would hear a, a nursery rhyme and figure it out on the toy piano. I had parents that you're either a doctor, a lawyer, professional something, an accountant, you're not a musician because musician is dreams and you know passions and dreams can't pay your bills so we don't support the music but figuring it out i knew i had something and then we you know your your family road trips mom would put on the the show tunes in the car or the neil diamonds or the barbara streisands mm -hmm. and i hadn't had lessons but i was always singing a harmony before mm -hmm. i knew what a harmony was i just picked a third without knowing it was a third parents didn't get it didn't get it i got it and i've been singing before anyone thought i could sing forever um i remember fourth grade in uh the auditorium we're waiting for whatever event to go on and we had the piano in there and i would get to sit at the piano and i would figure out songs and in fourth grade someone noticed my my fourth grade teacher mrs silverman and she called my parents and said, you need to get this girl piano lessons. And okay, they finally gave in. And my piano teacher, who I had for six months, noticed I wasn't paying attention to reading music, but I was picking it up by ear. So I, <laughs> and, and also singing. And so she was very encouraging. Stick with it. I get it with the, the sight reading. I mean, singing's your passion so she was giving she was like having me sing along with trying to learn the classics and and sight read which i can a little bit if i focus on it the bug never left and it was kind of like I, this is it in some way shape or form i have to do music that's my drug and then uh, i had my first on stage as a background singer experience in let's see in 10th grade I was singing backgrounds for um, just a cover band um, and we were all kids so we're underage and uh, it was at this place on Ventura Boulevard in Woodland Hills called the Valley West Supper Club and biggest high just do, I remember doing a oh I got one lead in a, a Pat Benatar song and that was it that was it hands down I'm on stage I don't care how much I'm going to like expel my guts before the show from nerves this is the best high ever you come off that stage and you're just you're floating i mean you don't need beer you don't need anything it's just the biggest high and it stays with you at least stayed with me and that was it i had to have a band let's take a quick break to listen to i can't breathe a solo song by Susie rose major Closeness that I've only felt with you I did 
then we moved to Vegas uh, and I got face down together. Well, I joined them actually. Um, I was 17. They were all in their late twenties and we played the circuit around the local rock clubs. Um, I had to stay in the manager's office because I was underage and it was all these over 21 clubs, but we'd play four sets, which is brutal. Four hours of screaming rock, like the Scorpions, original songs, but you have to fill in and who has four hours of original songs. So we'd mix in the two. And it was funny, I was just talking to a friend uh, because the Scorpions um, from Blackout, uh, you remember that album? Yeah. 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 Remember the song Now? Yep. A lot faster though. Yeah, it was just, that came into my head out of the blue because that was probably the most brutal song to sing during a four hour (laughs) set um, and always winded me, but I never looked back. And I mean, I'm in my fifties, like I said, and here I am still doing covers, but it keeps me young. I can't imagine doing anything else. And yes, my parents still laugh at it. (laughs) I had a show last night and Saturday, I'm like, mom, are you coming? It's in Hollywood. It's not far from you guys. It's too loud. And I go, "Um, every time the Stones have played, you guys go. So how is a little club event? You know, that's not that loud comparatively speaking, but yeah. They're not supportive, but it's good. That's your mom's way of saying you're no Mick Jagger. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and obviously the lips <laughs> can't win. Well, um, I, you know, uh, women in rock and pop music kind of seem to fall in and out of favor. In the 60s, of course, there were a lot of those girl groups. And in the 70s, there weren't that many. There's Hart and Fleetwood Mac and stuff like that. But then they really came back, I think, in the 80s with... Um, Joan Jett, Pat Benatar, Chrissy Hind, um, you know, yourself singing in bands. Um, give us a picture of what it was like to be in the rock scene then in the 80s as a woman. Was it their sexism or was there, did you find there was more opportunity because of the popularity of the female vocalist or just kind of give us a picture of what that was like? To be honest, I think the sexism, it just doesn't go away. It's still there now. I mean, it's it's an old boys, you put up with a lot. And uh, as you know, Stacy, we still do. I mean, I'm mean, even working in, in artist management. It's like, and, and sorry, Joel. <laughs> this, they, you know, like Paul's an ally. Yeah, you have to. I you am. have to put up with stuff, otherwise you get blacklisted. So you complain, and uh, you know there's a thousand other girls that'll do that want this job, and I'll just happy to be here type of thing. You know, you see it going on, and you hear it um, directed towards you. Like I had an experience in um, when I was recording actually the EP with the Sebastians. Um, We were at the record plant and it was full of stars. Stevie Nicks and Christine McVie were there while I was there. John Mellencamp was there and Rod Stewart was there. So I'm 17 and a half and and I see Rod Stewart. And I asked our engineer if he could introduce me, thinking nothing of it. 
And the response that the engineer came back to me with from Mr. Stewart was very sexual in nature and had to do with heavy breathing. If you get my drift, she can do that. And, and, and he was there with his wife. Wow. So yeah, you just go, ah, you, you got like, you just have to brush that stuff off. Otherwise you're a Karen, I guess. I wasn't outspoken over it. I just pushed on through. Um, nowadays, we get it as a as an all female band. Often, some old school promoters will go with another Aerosmith tribute because it's all guys, even though they're horrible and I won't name names. Wow! But they're really bad. Yet they'll go with them because they're men. Um, this is a, a rock and roll nightmares podcast, of course. So before we let you go, I have to ask, what is your rock and roll nightmare? I just had it last night. It's Ooh. funny you mentioned that. It's a recurring one Ooh. where I need to sing and there's a wad of gum and it's covering my tonsils. I can breathe, but it's like there's an impediment there and I'm pull, I, I dreamt this last night. It's crazy. I'm pulling out like this, like a, imagine a baseball size wad and it, it's endless. It doesn't grow, but it's that big, big as a baseball. And it just keeps coming out of my, my throat, it's stopping me from singing. And I've had that recurring nightmare. I think that means I'm not saying something that I want to say, or someone's trying to get me to stop singing. I don't know. <laughs> or, or I'm mouth breathing and like the dryness is, a, <laughs> but that is my nightmare. That is literally a nightmare. It is. <laughs> well, where can um, fans find and follow you online, Susie? Oh, thank you for asking. We are at www ragdolls one word dash band.com you can find us on facebook under ragdolls band uh instagram um where else uh oh i i, I started a TikTok, which is hilarious because you know <laughs> i'm not a boomer i'm gen x but still <laughs> I just yeah. got on there too. See? And I'm like, what do I yeah. do with this thing? <laughs> me too. Me too. Well, me three. It's fun. And then two hours later, after it's you're scrolling. Yeah, right. So what's your is, TikTok? Is, oh God, really? But it, <laughs> oh, it's a uh, Ragdoll's Tribute. Oh, and I have a, uh, I have a SoundCloud where there's songs from Sharknado and also recordings of Ragdolls and my own original songs under Susie Rose Major. I love it. I actually listened to quite a few songs oh. on there. Yeah, it's great. And it's very, there's a lot of 80s stuff in there. Joel, check it out because my old, one of my old bands, Cry Wolf is on there and there's some shredding that I think oh. you'll appreciate. Some guitar work. <laughs> That's a like, great name. Oh. All right, sweet. Thanks, Susie. So great to have you on the show. Thank, Thank you, you so Susie. much. So nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too, Joel and Stacy. A pleasure. Thank I hope you. that you guys can come see a show soon. Bye, Bye, guys. As always, I'm closing the show with an excerpt from one of the Rock and Roll Nightmares books. 
This is from the True Stories edition, and the chapter is Magical Mystery Tour. Rory Storm and his band The Hurricanes were hot stuff in Liverpool, England in the early 1960s. With Rory, born Alan Ernest Caldwell on vocals, and his friend Ringo Starr, then known by his real name of Richie Stark on the drums, plus other bandmates coming and going, the Hurricanes were the proverbial big fish in the small pond. But when Ringo left the band to join the Beatles in 1962 and other Mersey Beat bands came to the forefront, Rory saw his star slide off the radar. Still, his band did perform on the occasional double bill with the Beatles, and the flamboyant, gold lame-wearing singer kept the beat going for as long as he could. But eventually, he had to pack it in. Storm disbanded the Hurricanes and became a disc jockey working at the Silver Blades Ice Rink in Liverpool for a few years. When Rory's father died, he moved home to be with his mother. Shortly after, on September 28, 1972, mom and son were found dead in the house. The postmortem revealed alcohol and sleeping pill in both of their systems. Rumors abound that Rory died of an accidental overdose and his distraught parent committed suicide after finding the body. But the whole thing remains a tragic and puzzling mystery. This concludes another episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson. The theme song, Out for Blood, is composed and sung by Lars with a Z, Cabot, and the band is Fuzzbuster. You can hear the whole track in the horror comedy film Valentine Days, also with a Z. For photos of the guests and show archives, please visit the website rockandrollthings.com. That's rock and roll with an N. You can also join the Rock and Roll Nightmares Facebook group or follow us on Instagram at rock and roll nightmares books. That's B-O-O-K-S. This is an indie podcast, so your subscriptions and ratings are really important. Thank you for joining me. And until next time.